You are tuning in to On The Money with Dynamic Funds, a podcast series that delivers access to some of the industry's most experienced active managers and thought leaders. We're sitting down to ask them the pertinent questions to find out their insights on the market environment and navigating the investment landscape. You're listening to another edition of On The Money. I'm your host, Mark Brisley. It's easy to feel uneasy about bonds after a very tumultuous first half of 2022. The sharp rise in interest rates has been a massive drag on fixed income and with losses feeling even more acute when coupled with a stock market rout. The drivers of the challenges, however, facing the bond market are the usual suspects. The surge in inflation and central bank actions to raise interest rates to curb that inflation have been seen before. So while the factors underlying the bond market declines aren't unusual, The velocity and the extent of the losses and the accompanying jump in yields, that's what's unique to this post-pandemic economic recovery, if we should even use that word. Add in geopolitical instability, and it's not a surprise, investors have more questions than answers. But are investors too pessimistic right now? And is the narrative changing? Are we at peak inflation? Are we starting to once again see the inverse correlation that has been absent in the face of both equity and bond prices declining amid rapid inflation? So to unwrap all of these subjects and more today, my guest is portfolio manager Rose Devley. In a career that has spanned over the last 17 years, Rose has focused on a top-down, bottom-up approach to fixed income portfolio management with an emphasis on capital optimization and active risk management. Rose is also a guest lecturer at Queen's University, is featured regularly on business news networks, including BNN, and is a limited partner in the Women's Equity Lab, an empowering organization to encourage women to actively engage in early stage investing. Rose, it's a pleasure to have you with us, and I'm going to jump right into the first question, which is, let's start with talking about some of the issues facing investors as central banks are looking to combat inflation while trying to also keep us out of a recession. Uh, Yes, I would not like to be in Powell's shoes or any of the central bankers right now. I think what they did last year was a bit of a mistake. Now, I understand heading out of a pandemic, but then getting faced with a mutation like Delta, they had to take a step back. So heading into the February or the March meeting last year, the market really thought that the Fed would be talking about, you know, tapering or raising rates in some degree. Um, And then they really stepped that back and they said, you know, out the door with the models and we're going to just look at the data. So they had the chance to increase rates last year and they, they unfortunately didn't. So it kind of fueled the fire. And then obviously stepping into 2022, a lot of the market just discounted a lot of the risk events that happened in the first quarter, such as, you know, the biggest one being the Russian war uh, with Ukraine that really exaggerated things. If you ask most bond managers, you know, what would be inflation in 2022 last year, I guarantee 99% of them wouldn't say, you know, 8% in the U.S. Um, So unfortunately, you know, that bond stock correlation really breaks down uh, when you have high inflation and stubborn inflation. You know, the Fed walking into the 2022, everyone knew that they had to tighten financial conditions. But Russia really put a wrench into things and they had to tighten quicker than they expected just because of all the supply chain issues and then all all with the energy crisis with what's happening in Russia, Europe and and, uh, the rest of the world. 
you know, right now heading into the second half of the year, inflation expectations should be heading down. So that's why we've had kind of this this little bit of consolidation in in yields uh, for the past couple of weeks. But it's definitely a question mark in a lot of portfolio managers' minds. Why, where, or when, and what is the neutral rate out there? And when will the Fed stop? So it's a rock and a hard place because the Fed and other central banks are going to be hiking into a slowing down environment. The good thing that the Fed has on their side is the labor market. It is extremely tight, which is on their side. So if they do hike aggressively and they talk about hiking above this neutral rate to kind of calm inflation expectations, because you really don't want, you know, what is worse than, than a recession uh, entrenched inflation, in my opinion. Why is that? Well, in, an, in a recession, you have a probability of losing your job, but in entrenched inflation, everyone is experiencing 8%, 5%, you know, perhaps another year of 3 to 4%. You're really heading into, you know, a 20% inflation environment within three-year period. That is just a, a complete destruction of purchasing power especially because a lot of the world isn't the top 1% and doesn't really have that savings rate that uh, that others do. So um, again, I, I wouldn't uh, want to be the central banks right now, but that's the predicament that they're in. Those numbers are staggering. I mean, we just haven't seen this before. And when we think about the pressures now this is going to put on people trying to build portfolios, bonds have always been a ballast in an investor's portfolio. And you know, you've described some things now that are making this more challenging. So is the situation we're in, in particular the beginning of how this year has started, does this change your view of bonds as a ballast, as a bond manager? It's funny that you bring that up, actually. Um, in the midst of COVID, you know, when the Fed was buying primarily most of the bond market, volatility was extremely low, and it was not looking great for active management, to be 100% honest with you. We had a yield on the index of, you know, just above 1% at one point. It just really looked like the market was sluggish and there was, wasn't really opportunity to take alphabets. Now, as you can see, the destruction in the bond market as well as other markets, you know, that one to one and a half percent has risen to almost four percent uh, running yield on the index. So you start to think to yourself, you know, this starts to make sense when you look at equities, when you look at, you know, uh, the dividend rate, when you look at anticipated growth rate in the equity market. Typically, when interest rates head to that, you know, three to 4% or a little bit higher than 4%, a lot of managers, um, you know, uh, risk parity managers or pension funds, they start de-risking because they think to themselves, you know, if I can get that three to 4% interest rate, basically at a lot less uh, risk adverse than buying the stock market, then hey, that, that makes a lot of sense. And for a lot of pension funds, especially right now, their fund status ratio is, is exceptional levels, like over 100%. Um, so that's why it's kind of a no-brainer. And you see a little bit of this and, and why the, the yield curve is flattening is because a lot of people are de-risking given that yield. So yes, there's been a lot of destruction, but with destruction comes value. And on top of that value comes a little bit of insurance protection too, because if you have, you know, the market falling apart, then at least you have uh, bonds really rallying in that environment. And that will, uh, that correlation really comes back, especially on risk off. So it's uh, at these kind of levels, I say that you have to start pairing in again. What are some of the considerations an investor needs to be thinking about uh, if they want to invest directly in, you know, 
a five-year Govy, for example. The alpha drivers or the drivers of performance in fixed income is always going to be the, you know, the top three factors and then everything else comes below that. But it's overall duration, yield curve positioning, and percentage of credit allocation to the portfolio. So your duration can be correct, let's say, but you know where you are on the yield curve really could help your performance or hinder your performance. And I think a lot of investors don't think about that. So they say to themselves, you know, the yield on a two-year, let's say, treasury is a certain level. So they buy that one security or, or let's say the five-year, like you're saying, um, and then they think that they are protected per se and say, you know what, I have an allocation of bonds because I bought this one bond. It's a government of Canada five-year. The problem in that is that, yes, you have some duration risk, which is great. You basically are, um, you know, subject to idiosyncratic risk. And when you're talking about the Canadian government, there is no risk there. But let's say if you're, you're talking about a credit bond, say a Rogers five-year, there is idiosyncratic risk. Um, but if you're talking about just a five-year uh, Canada bond, then you have yield curve risk. So what happens if the Bank of Canada sees that, you know, we had CPI this week that said it was just over 7%. That can be problematic um, when you talk about the yield curve because the front end of the yield curve, you know, zero to almost five year, really gets um, affected by uh, central bank expectations. The back end of the yield curve, you know, that 10 to 30 year part of the yield curve really gets affected by inflation expectations as well as other risk off sentiment. So if you have high inflation and you expect the central bank to really be, as we call it, hawkish and raise interest rates more than the market expects, that five year bond can actually underperform quite significantly a 10 year or a 30 year bond. So you might say to yourself, you know, I, I have bond risk uh, in the five-year part of the curve or four-year part of the curve, then all of a sudden that happens. And you're, you know, depending on how um, the yield curve moves, you can even be underperforming. So it's something to pay attention to. And that's why, you know, you really have to think about the three factors that are driving your bond portfolio. So um, I know a lot of investors that think that they're covered for bond risk, just buying one bond on one particular part of the yield curve. But unfortunately, you have to think about it on, on a portfolio basis. Um, and that's why it's, it's better to be in more of a portfolio than a one bond structure. Yeah, and I'm glad you bring that up because obviously you and I uh, both work in an environment where we're dealing with, you know, managed portfolios. I I've had a lot of conversations with both investors and advisors over the last few months where they've, you know, been saying they're probably opting for the individual bond position because they're saying, I know what the bond is going to do and deliver. I don't necessarily know what the bond fund is going to do. But my question of you is, you know, over the long term, a managed portfolio an actively managed portfolio with an investment manager that has a track record in running these types of mandates is still a viable option, correct? Yes. I mean, you really have to, an investment advisor or any kind of investor really has to think about why are you putting this bond in your portfolio? If it's just for that running yield, that yield to maturity, which I would argue is a very small, you know, percentage of, of what you actually can get back from a diversified bond portfolio, then sure. But Let's go back to the example on, on buying a short-end bond. Let's say buying a four-year, you know, Rogers bond. Well, that four-year bond doesn't necessarily have the duration of a 10 or 30-year bond. We, we discussed that a little bit and we discussed the yield curve. 
Um, it also has a, a lot of idiosyncratic risk. Um, you know that Rogers, as well as other telcos, are um, levering up their balance sheets, trying to buy growth out there. Obviously, we had a massive Rogers deal in the past few months. So the credit quality could really depreciate. And the problem here with credit quality, when you're, especially when you're buying a one bond, let's say this Rogers bond, you're buying an investment grade bond, let's say a triple B bond like Rogers, but you have the probability, um, and some would argue, you know, an increased probability of one day owning a high yield bond. Now, why is that bad? Well, you know, the, the spread difference when you're talking about credit quality in a corporate bond, the largest gap is from investment grade to high yield. So when you're talking about the spectrum of credit risk, you know, triple A all the way to triple B, yes, you have increments for sure. You know, that can, depending on market conditions, it can be as tight as 10 beeps. It can be as wide as, you know, 100 However, when you're getting to investment grade to high yield, that spread, depending on market conditions, can really vary from 100 basis points to, you know, I've seen it for, for a few hundred basis points. And what does that mean? Well, that means that the bond price could drop potentially by dollar amounts. So I think a lot of investors don't think about that. If you hold, you know, you can argue back to me and say, well, I'm just going to hold the, the high yield bond until maturity. And at least I'll know I get my yield to maturity. That's fair. But why are you holding bonds in the first place? For me, uh, bonds increase, you know, like we talked about portfolio insurance, which is huge. Duration is a measure of the sensitivity of price of a bond to changes of interest rates. So if you have, you know, right now, I would argue we're in the ninth inning or almost at the end of, of an economic cycle, perhaps heading into a, a recession, at least probabilities are higher. So to me, the bond risk in the portfolio, especially at this part of the economic cycle, really brings down your risk in the overall portfolio. So that's why I would buy bonds right now. Um, but if you're buying a Rogers bond, you just, you know, a five, four or five year bond, you have to think about why I'm owning that risk and why I'm not owning the equity, I'm, I'm owning the debt, and what are the risks associated with that. And as long as the investor understands that, then I'm more comfortable with the overall, you know, answer to that. But it's, I think a lot of investors don't think about the, all the possibilities. As a bond or fixed income manager, you know, I know how much you're focused on, you know, the macro environment. When we think about, you know, here in North America and specifically the focus today, you know, on Canada, when you look at the household balance sheet of Canadians right now compared to what we're hearing and seeing in the U.S., any specific concerns for you with respect to, you know, Canadian households, debt levels, you know, the amount of wealth that's tied up, for example, in our homes um, that have you thinking differently uh, over the last year? Definitely. Um, everyone talks about how hawkish our central bank is, especially versus uh, the Fed uh, in the U.S. The problem here is that yeah, we don't have the diversification that the uh, U.S. has. Yes, you can argue that you know the job market is extremely tight in Canada, just like the U.S. However, because of the lack of diversification, um, because of the increase of immigrants into Canada versus the U.S. in the last couple of years, I do think on a slowdown that we suffer uh, more than the U.S. In on the jobs fronts. Um, so that's not even talking about the leverage you know, that everyone has. And unfortunately, we can't really get true numbers of leverage of the normal you know, consumer just because you know, there's different practices uh, in Canada than there is in the U.S. A lot of people 
obviously have taken out mortgages. However, they've also taken out home lines of credit to, you know, especially in the last few years with COVID and with increased house prices, people didn't necessarily could afford to move because of associated costs. So what they did was take out these massive lines of credit and renovate their homes. And unfortunately, you know, there isn't really great data on that part of how levered we are too. So talking about, you know, what we have on outstanding mortgages and then adding in that home line of credit uh, element as well as, as credit cards and other debt, I think that we actually are more levered than the markets could suggest. And these kinds of interest rates, especially the pace um, of interest rates and how high that they um, already have soared versus the the beginning of the year will be problematic. Um, The good thing about Canada, obviously, we have oil, we have wheat, you know, a lot of the things that the world is looking for right now. But those types of commodities, you know, being a commodity linked country, when there is a slowdown, those things can really dive very hard as we've seen in other recessions. So um, that kind of gets things off the table. So when I think about, you know, the Fed versus the Bank of Canada, I I really do truly believe that the Fed has uh, more power in in this slowdown than we do. It really does seem that you've highlighted the fact you have to be ready for volatility in the short term regardless. And that includes not just equities, which I think a lot of people think about, but it also includes fixed income and have to focus on maintaining an asset allocation that's suitable for their time horizon, because obviously demographics life cycle play a role. So any kind of final thoughts as we're navigating this current situation for investors out there that are, you know, throwing their hands in the air going, you know, where to go, what to do, or what I should be thinking about? Yeah, sure. I think a diversified portfolio is definitely, especially at these types of economic conditions, the right way to go. Now, the percentage of bonds in that portfolio, I can, you know, be the first one to say it depends on your your demographic, depends on your age, depends on the, you know, how risky um, can you be at this point of your you know, life cycle, let's say. Um, I personally believe that there should be a portion of bonds in your portfolio just because, A, we were talking about running yield you know, of that 4% almost of the index starts to make sense, you know, when, you know, uh, expectations on the equity market aren't as rosy as they were in the last couple of years. I mean, even if earnings do keep up with what expectations are, you know, that 5 to 10%, you know, when you're in a period of tightening financial conditions globally, and this isn't just like a North America thing, this is, you know, Europe is tightening the U.S., Canada, um, New Zealand, uh, Australia, um, you have a global tightening. That really means that asset prices should be coming down. And especially for, you know, when we're talking about that, we're talking about risk-based assets. Um, So when I think about that, I think about the added value to adding bonds. You get that running yield of that, you know, three to four percent. But then you get what we talked about before in terms of duration. So if interest rates were to come down, The market is expecting interest rates. You know, when you look at the forward curve on what Fed fund futures are looking at, it looks like the Fed will be lowering rates in that 2023-2024 period. Well, if that's the case, then you really have that running yield of 3 to 4%, plus you have the added value of duration of your bonds. And that can really add up like what happened in 2008, you know, in the financial crisis, the beginning of the financial crisis, the best trade to put on was going long 
30-year U.S. Um, treasuries. And you made a killing on that because you had over 5% and it rallied all the way back down to very low, you know, 1% to 2% numbers at the time. Um, so you really have to put things in perspective um, and think about what, what kind of insurance that you want in the portfolio. So maybe just a quick follow-up to that. For some of our listeners that, you know, sort of follow portfolio management and, and think about their own portfolios, they'd be familiar with the term the 60-40 portfolio, you know, the weighting of equities to fixed income. And depending on your life cycle, that, that number may be reversed between the two. If you were to Google that right now, you would see a lot of headlines that say the 60-40 portfolio is dead. Um, is that too dramatic in your opinion? Personally, uh, that 60-40 portfolio only holds when you have a period of a sluggish, I would say, inflation. So again, when you have periods of very high inflation, which we've, we've experienced the last one to two years with this pandemic that we've gone through, I mean, the U.S. itself printed, you know, 20% of GDP. So what were we expecting? Um, once inflation does come back down, and, and that number you can debate about because you have different demographics still in North America, you have technology that's typically a deflator in the economy. So we have these long-term things that will, will put pressure on inflation. I'm not saying deflation, but it would probably bring in inflation back to re more reasonable levels, like the Fed always talks about that 2%. Um, but on the short term, you still have these these pressures, such as you know Russia. You had the China supply chain issues. You have ESG, which is a huge inflationary factor, which isn't going away anytime soon. And you have the changing um, labor market, which a lot of people are retiring, and you don't necessarily have the type of people that want to work these these types of jobs that uh, we have uh, out there available to them. So there's two types of, you know, differing factors right now that I would say, you know, but on a long-term basis, especially in North America, I do personally believe that inflation will come back down to that lower, you know, around that 2% average. If inflation comes back down to that 2% average or below, that 60-40 portfolio does hold because the correlation does hold. Now, if you're wrong on inflation and you actually believe, you know, five to eight percent a year, which every single central bank is not okay with, then yes, perhaps maybe that that portfolio does not work anymore. Um, however, I, I'm I'm in the in the camp of uh, yes, we will get down inflation back down to that average. It might take a little bit longer than than what we want, but sooner or later we'll get there, and that portfolio will come back. So what's the biggest factor in that is inflation. These have been great insights. There's so much to unpack here. And, and um, you know, I, I appreciate uh, your commentary here. And in particular, uh, most portfolios contain an element of fixed income. So it's uh, equities get all the headlines. But uh, this one is certainly, as, as we talked about it, being the ballast is uh, not lacking for the importance of uh, paying attention to it. So I appreciate this. I wanted to shift the conversation just a little bit, Rose. And an observation I can make, having been in this industry for 30 years myself. You're a, a woman who's a portfolio manager, an investor. You don't have to look very far to determine that that's an underserved demographic in the investment world is uh, female portfolio managers. But also as we start to think about just demographic shifts in, in the population and the realization when we think about investors themselves and the transfer of wealth that's going to occur over the next decades where women are going to be in control of a lot of wealth in, in households around North America and, and the world. First of all, maybe I'll start with what made you get into this gig? Um, but I also wanted to touch in a little bit on, you know, the importance for women looking at this as a career, but also women as investors. Terrific question. 
how did I get into this? Um, I've always been fascinated with the markets, even in university. You know, when I was in university and undergrad, um, at the time I wanted to be an academic because I was so involved as a teacher assistant, et cetera, to plenty of courses and, and research papers with professors. And that was what I wanted to do. And then, you know, one professor that I was working with uh, in risk, the, the course was called risk management. Um, and he was a managing director at uh, Scotia full time. And he was a part time lecturer of that particular course. And he said, you know, why don't you come in for, for an interview? And I said, you know, I, don't, I didn't really understand. And he said, for bonds, you know, I took one course in bonds. And I'm like, okay, I'll just go in. I, I have no idea what I'm getting myself into. Um, and, you know, life just took its toll from there. You know, I got hired onto the trade floor. Um, I remember the first day looking around and everyone was talking this different language that I didn't understand. Um, and it wasn't, you know, the, the floor itself didn't really look very, you know, diversified. There was, you know, you know, a lot of older, you know, men on the, on the floor. And, uh, uh I thought to myself as I sat down, like, what did I do? <laughs> um, but since then, you know, it's been a great ride. I can't uh, can't complain. So yes, I got into bon the bond market in particular uh, by fluke. Um, but you know, at the time, I didn't even realize how, you know, how much of a multiple of other markets that it is, and and the derivatives involved in it, etc. So I'm very thankful that I was led into fixed income. It's gave me such a lucrative career. I learn every day. Uh, the market is absolutely insane at times. So whatever you think you know, uh, the market will teach you something else the next day. Um, you know, diversity is definitely a, a topic um, that has been, for the last 17 years of my career, been a hot topic. You know, when I was in university or even high school, you know, looking for those types of female, you know, especially successful uh, portfolio managers wasn't necessarily a hard thing. There's a lot of them out there. They just don't get airtime. So if you look for them, they're there they're motivating, um, but they don't really scream in your face. So what do I, you know, wh what do I think or, you know, for the next generation and, uh, you know, what do I think about, you know, the biggest factors are is if you're comfortable taking market risk and you're really fascinated and, and want to be learning every day something new, this is the type of career for you. Um, and don't be discouraged with the lack still of diversity out there. You know, in that 17 years that I've been in the business, uh, it's definitely getting better, but it's nowhere near where we should be. Um, so it's, you know, there's a lot of things that are helping um, that, like a lot of programs um, in university and even in high school, women in capital markets, uh, definitely plowing the way as well as other programs there. So do I have hope? Yes. Um, but definitely getting out there talking to the different genders and, and different races is, is something that we'll have to continue to do because the numbers are still not uh, optimal or at least what I'm seeing out there, Mark. And I want to also ask you, you know, you're involved, as I mentioned in the opening, uh, in the Women's Equity Lab, which is, you know, all about empowerment and encouraging women to engage in, in early stage investing. But a lot of financial institutions are now paying attention to the fact that uh, women as investors is a market that they have, quite frankly, not done a great job in paying attention to, but are going to be dealing with it based on this transfer of wealth that I spoke to earlier. What advice would you also have just, you know, women not necessarily look at this as a career, but women looking at investing with a more, you know, serious lens? 
That too is, is another great question. A lot of women are more risk adverse than, than the typical man, for sure. Um, and there's plenty of reasons behind that. Um, but when you talk about investing, you really, you know, I feel like the women, like you said, they have the capital behind them. They just are a little bit risk adverse. So to get them more comfortable with investing, and, and that's why there's there's all these different types of programs and, and why I'm part of the Women's Equity Lab. As long as they start or you give them kind of a holding hand of, you know, it's just a little bit, let's start here, let's grow, let's, you know, and, and reminding them that they don't have to be right a 100% of the time. I think that is the biggest factor. You know, when I was starting out in the business, I went from sales to trading and I was terrified to put on large trades. And, you know, my manager at the time said, you don't have to be right 100% of the time. Even, a, you know, an amazing trader is only right, you know, 60% of the time. So um, I think education is number one. Um, once you educate, you know, uh, you know, a woman, it, it empowers them. Uh, they have the capital behind it. You have that trust with them and you can move forward with them. But it just takes a little bit more handholding, I, you know, from what I've seen in the last 17 years and, and especially my own experience. You know, it took me a little bit, but once I heard that from my boss, I had that confidence and then I moved forward with it. So if we can kind of communicate that to everyone, it gets them more comfortable. Rose, you're about to embark on a pretty significant life change of your own as well. And, and that's uh, exciting for you, I'm sure. But also, you know, um, stepping away for a little bit from uh, an, an active career in, in portfolio management is something else that uh, women have to deal with as well. How, how do you find sort of managing the work-life balance and life stages that people go through that, you know, th that's been going for you? And is there room to improve and evolve for organizations that have women working for them? I think at the beginning of my career, I didn't really know what work-life balance was. Uh, <laughs> I was, you know, working, you know, 12 to 14 hours a day, and then I was going to school, uh, and then some of the days I was teaching at McMaster, trying to do my CFA. I would say my 20s was basically, I don't remember very much of it. However, demographics, um, you know, as I, at the time, I was at Scotia Capital, and I remember, you know, every single, you know, uh, intern that came through was different and changing the environment a little bit. And, you know, um, and the, the whole trade floor, I felt like every year became more relaxed and more work-life balance focused. I think definitely the biggest leap was, was COVID um, and showing management in the world that businesses can be as productive or even more productive uh, with workers that are working from home, um, that are more satisfied, that can get a lot of the you know, housework done or, or raise children or whatever they have to do with also working at the same time. I know personally for me, you know, as soon as I you know wake up, I'll log into work and it doesn't take me that time to commute in, which is huge. And when I'm, when I'm locking down my day, take a little bit more time because I, I don't have to rush out and, you know, pick up kids or, or, or get to family things as, as quickly as I would need to if I was coming from the office. I think, um, I think this is really important. I think teams, teams are extremely important as well. So going back to the office is definitely an important thing. Um, you need to be collaborative with your team, depending on on what your role is. Uh, but at one, you know, especially in our industry, you do need to to go in and have that face to face. Um, just it's a trust business, right? And if you're not communicating with your team, then even like 
dealers, people on the street. Um, you need to establish that, that type of trust. Um, does that mean you have to be in the office five times a week? Definitely not. So something between that, you know, it's not going to be, you know, zero. It's not going to be five. So something in between makes some sense to me. But I think as employers um, um, trust their employees more and notice that they are more productive and happier at home um, and have that work-life balance, um, it's, it's better for all personally. And I think that's why a lot of people are hesitant to get back into the job market because they want to know that, that employers are sponsoring them and understand that element. Rose, this has been great. We've covered a lot of ground on two important subjects. One is, you know, managing the volatility and expectations in a difficult market environment, but also women in wealth management and women as investors is a subject that definitely deserves even more attention. So I thank you for your insights on both of these subjects. Thanks very much, Mark. It's been a pleasure. And for all of our listeners to learn more about what we discussed, I would invite you to join us on our webpage at dynamic.ca to our Volatility Resource Center, where you'll hear a lot of uh, further insights uh, that align with what Rose and I were discussing on today's podcast. I want to thank everyone for joining us, and we'll talk to you very soon. You've been listening to another edition of On The Money with Dynamic Funds. For more information on Dynamic and our complete fund lineup, contact your financial advisor or visit our website at Dynamic. This audio has been prepared by 1832 Asset Management LP and is provided for information purposes only. Views expressed regarding a particular investment, economy, industry, or market sector should not be considered an indication of trading intent of any of the mutual funds managed by 1832 Asset Management LP. These views are not to be relied upon as investment advice, nor should they be considered a recommendation to buy or sell. These views are subject to change at any time based upon markets and other conditions, and we disclaim any responsibility to update such views. To the extent this audio contains information or data obtained from third-party sources, it is believed to be accurate and reliable as of the date of publication. But 1832 Asset Management LP does not guarantee its accuracy or reliability. Nothing in this document is or should be relied upon as a promise or representation as to the future. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of return are the historical annual compound total returns, including changes in unit values. And reinvestment of all distributions does not take into account sales, redemption, or option changes, or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated.